Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. Uh, I have a few updates to get to. Uh, before we get started, I do want to say thanks to our sponsor, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, uh, and also give you a reminder to follow me on Twitter at FarmDTenib. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, since I've last been able to record an update, we've had a, a couple, uh, no new drugs approved, but a couple new uh, updated uh, indications for drugs already on the market. Um, going back to April 30th, Dabrafenib plus Tremetinib was approved for adjuvant treatment of stage 3 uh, melanoma that possessed the BRAF V600E or V600K mutation. Uh, and this was based off the COMBI-AD or COMBI-AD study that was published um, last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we actually discussed this uh, in the second episode of Oncopharm, the adjuvant TKIs episode. So I'm not going to go into the study uh, in depth. <clears throat> uh, if you go back to the adjuvant TKIs um, a podcast and go to the 19-minute mark, you'll hear my thoughts on that. Uh, if you don't want to do that, just to summarize, there's benefit to this. Uh, I, I quibble with calling this adjuvant treatment because adjuvant to me uh, says it's going to be curative. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Interestingly, um, for this approval, we don't know what the what ODAC, who's the uh, the advisory committee for oncology drugs, how they voted as of yet. I've scoured the internet, scoured Twitter for this, couldn't find it. Um, for the adjuvant sunitinib approval for stage three high risk um, renal cell carcinoma the dope was the vote by ODAC was six to six so it split on this so after I post this episode if you follow me or follow the podcast at onco farm pod uh, once I'm able to find that out once the FDA puts that information up on the internet uh, I'll let you know if there was a similar split vote or, or if things have moved uh, while we stay uh, and of course debrafenib has BRA-RAF, it's a BRAF inhibitor. Tremetinib has the ME in the middle. It's a MEK inhibitor. Uh, fast forward to May 4th, Dibrafenib and Tremetinib approved for locally advanced or metastatic anaplastic thyroid cancer. Uh, anaplastic thyroid cancer is the, the least common type of thyroid cancer. It makes up less than 2% of thyroid cancers according to the, thi the National Thyroid uh, Cancer Association. Uh, anaplastic means it, it doesn't look like its original tissue. So this is very aggressive, doesn't behave like thyroid tissue. Um, and that's not just because it's cancer. Normal thyroid cancers, whether it's medullary uh, or whatever, tend to behave somewhat like normal thyroid tissue. That's why you can treat it with a radioactive iodine, iodine-131. That's not an option for anaplastic thyroid cancer. So the best treatment is surgery radiation. And if that doesn't work, uh, maybe you can do radiation and chemo with a taxane platinum, maybe an anthracycline, although not with radiation. Uh, so this approval is based off of a basket study or a basket trial. So a basket trial is uh, where... Um, investigators are looking for patients with a certain mutation. In this case, it's the BRAF V600E mutation, regardless of what type of cancer, in this case, thyroid. So this was a, a BRAF V600E uh, rare cancers basket trial. Uh, uh, the NCT number is 0203 uh, And they were able to accrue um, uh, 23 patients who are valuable for response. So this approval is based off of an N of 23 of patients who had no local regional options. So they, it wasn't surgically resectable and they'd already maxed out their radiation or, or they could not irradiate. Uh, there were 14 people who responded, so that's a 61% response rate. And you may say, well, that's only, you know, that's a, an, an N of less than 25. What can really take from that? 
interestingly, that 61% overall response rate is almost the same as the 60 or 64% response rate overall that you see in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that has a uh, the V600E mutation BRF, which uh, has an approval for dibrafenib and tremendib, or metastatic melanoma, the original approval for this combination, also response rates uh, around 60%. So, uh, so that's the overall response rate probably would hold up as you accrued more patients. Uh, now, only one of those was complete response, and then the rest, the other 13, partial responses. And the typical thing we see. Uh, with a, a BRAF and a MEK inhibitor combined is you tend to see better response rates than just a, a BRAF inhibitor by alone, a lot better response rates than just a MEK inhibitor, um, <clears throat> and longer durations of response. But then eventually for a metastatic disease, um, generally all patients will progress, sadly. Um, while we're on the subject of a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor, I thought it would be worthwhile to kind of talk about this a little bit more as far as I can uh, recall when I stretch into the, the, the recesses of my brain, it's the only time that we use two tyrosine kinase inhibitors concurrently. So I want to go back to uh, a study that was published in Nature in 2010 by uh, Nazarian and colleagues, and, and this was described uh, very elegantly by David B. Soli, or Solit, S-O-L-I-T, uh, as a, basically a correspondence in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. The New England Journal of Medicine does these really nice um, articles that are really two pages, and there's a half a page as a figure usually, and it's basically the clinical implications of basic science research. And they were talking about this Nazarene article, basically classifying or characterizing is a better term, uh, the resistance to BRAF inhibitors and melanoma. So this was, gosh, seven, eight years ago. So at the time, we, we knew that about half of these patients with metastatic melanoma had this mutation in BRAF, and that if you blocked it, uh, the drugs worked for a while. But eventually, as tends to happen with every tyrosine kinase inhibitor, not including our drugs for CML, is that resistance develops. And that what they were able to characterize um, is that uh, you get an upregulation, an upregulation of MEK. So if you think back to I don't know pathophysiology or, or somewhere biochemistry, maybe you you will have a memory, uh, a memory or an image in your head, or remember the RAS ref, RAS RAF MEP kinase pathway. So the way this works is at the very top you have RAS. RAS gets activated, so a tyrosine gets added right by a kinase. RAF, RAS gets activated, that activates RAF. And there are a couple different types of RAF. Here we're talking about BRAF. So RAF activates RAS, activates RAF, activates MEK, activates ERK. Then that goes in and causes some change in genetic expression in the nucleus to promote cell proliferation or survival in some way. So think of it. You have, you know, kind of four steps in this pathway. RAS, RAF, MEK, ERK. RAF is the second in that pathway. So blocking RAF should block that pathway. But what they found is there was some other way, so some other tyrosine kinases or a different uh, RAS mechanism was able to circumvent that, that RAF or BRAF step and upregulate MEK. Well, now that we know that, it makes sense to add a RAF and a MEK inhibitor together. And that uh, was shown to be successful uh, in metastatic melanoma. But now you're seeing uh, this BRAF and, and combi combined with a MEK inhibitor used not just for melanoma metastatic, but also for anaplastic thyroid cancer uh, and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Um, for at least for metastatic melanoma, 
adding the MEK inhibitor decreased the incidence of the non-melanoma skin cancers that you saw because of, of upregulation of RAS uh, non-mutated uh, MAP kinase pathway. Um, so anyway, that's, that's an interesting uh, thing to go back and review if you're not familiar with it because it is the best example we have um, uh, of using tool or dual uh, TKI, dual pathway blockade. Um, the best example, uh, maybe it's not the best example, it's an easy example, I'll say it that way, that I, and I use this in class a lot, is if you're tra trying to travel from point A to point B and you block the interstate from point A to point B, that's like blocking one pathway, that's blocking BRAF. And that will certainly slow things down, but eventually, uh, and it'll take longer to get there, but eventually people are going to realize that there is a blockade on the in on the interstate, and they're going to find a back road, a way around. And essentially what we're doing here is we're blocking both the interstate and then also the back road from point A to point B. And that's going to prevent a lot of people from getting to point B, and that's going to slow the cancer down and, and cause uh, some, some regression of the cancer, and that's great. Uh, however, eventually, uh, you know, people are going to find their way to point A, and eventually cancers are going to find their way there. Um, <clears throat> that's the unfortunate thing. It does work better in the short term uh, than just blocking one pathway alone, obviously. Uh, and of course, uh, RAS, RAF, MEK, ERK uh, are in almost all cells in our body. So if you're blocking um, two of those, uh, you're probably going to see more side effects as well because you're blocking um, pathways that are involved in almost all cells. Uh, so anyway dual uh, TKI blockade. Um, seen some, some approvals for that recently. Okay, moving on. May 1st, uh, TIS agenlic loose cell, which is the CD19 CAR T cell that was already approved for uh, leukemias. Um, I think Kimriah was the brand name. Uh, it was approved uh, for th in the third line setting for um, large B-cell lymphoma. And I won't get into the details of that. Uh, that's going to be kind of a specialty thing. Uh, and if your center does that, you probably are going to be involved in the REMS program to be able to uh, dispense that. Okay, let's talk about the uh, recent approval on the 7th of May for daratumumab for, uh, in, for initial treatment of myeloma patients who are not transplant eligible in combination with uh, VMP, which is bortezomib or Velcade, melphalan, and prednisone. Uh, a little bit of historical context here. Uh, VMP is um, uh, bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone is it is the uh, the FDA standard comparative regimen uh, because it was better than MP for transplant ineligible patients. And I want to pause here in case you're not familiar with myeloma, and that uh, an autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant is. Uh, considered, uh, you know, the best treatment you can give for myeloma, and, and nowadays even the cheapest treatment you can give for myeloma. However, you cannot uh, use melphalan in people who uh, are being considered for a transplant because you will cause so much damage to the bone marrow that you will not be able to collect that patient's own uh, stem cells from the bone marrow. They will not be able to mobilize the stem cells for an autologous stem cell transplant. So this is only in transplant ineligible patients. And before we get into this study uh, that got daratumumab approved, um, I don't see a lot of melphalan used in my practice for induction of myeloma patients. Even if somebody's transplant ineligible, the transplant centers we send patients to say, hold off on melphalan, things may change. Uh, the, the age requirement, so to speak, or the, the upper threshold for who is transplant eligible seems to change uh, year by year. So you don't see a lot of melphalan in the practice, which calls into question kind of 
you know, the validity of making this a comparative regimen if clinically there are very few transplant ineligible patients in the real world. This is kind of like using chlorambucil uh, as the backbone uh, for a comparative regimen for CLL. Most people don't use chlorambucil for CLL, but it's still the gold standard in the eyes of the, uh, the FDA. Um, I digress, or I have digressed. All right, so this is based off, this approval is based off the, uh, the Alcyone study. Uh, and Alcyon is, is some sort of figure from Greek mythology as well as a star system. Um, that's a fun fact to impress people at parties. Uh, this was originally published um, in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2017 by uh, Mateos and colleagues. Uh, real quick, um, efficacy-wise, 18-month uh, progression-free survival benefit um, by almost an absolute benefit of 20%, so 71.6% in the daratumab group were alive without progression or death after 18 months compared to 50% in the comparator group, so daratumab, big improvement. Uh, I think the biggest thing to take away from an efficacy standpoint is they looked at patients who achieved um, basically a complete response with, with no minimal residual disease. Uh, and if you're ever going to cure myeloma, you got to get people to <clears throat> to a, a negative minimal residual disease status. Means not only can we not see myeloma cells or evidence of myeloma cells, but if we look for the DNA of the myeloma cells that was there initially, we can't find it. So 22.3% in the daratumab group achieved a negative MRD status versus only 6.2% in the comparator group with bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. So. I've seen people already talk about this on Twitter, is this is an upfront approval for daratumab. We knew this would happen eventually. Um, you know, eventually people think daratumab is going to be like rituximab for non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. <clears throat> every myeloma patient is going to get daratumab upfront, and, and maybe, you know, in every cycle thereafter, we'll see. Um, but it does have an upfront approval, but not for the typical regimens that you use. And I think you're going to see a lot of physicians, a lot of oncologists, start to use borte or use daratumab with um, in transplant eligible patients in the first line setting. Um, and I think the data in one, two, three, four, however many years from now, will probably say that that's the best thing. Although the data certainly are not there yet. Um, one takeaway from this study, and I think this is important. Um, you guys know that if somebody is receiving bortezomib or another proteasome inhibitor, we basically put everyone on herpes virus prophylaxis. That was not something that was always done. And the, that practice arose from the original VMP study compared to MP. I think it was the VISTA study, and it was bortezomib and then melphalan and prednisone compared to just melphalan and prednisone in transplant ineligible patients, so probably frail patients. And that was the first safety signal that you could have a reactivation of herpes virus uh, in patients receiving bortezomib, along with receiving melphalan and prednisone. I think it was like 13% versus 4%, and thereafter, everybody basically with bortezomib is going to be on, uh, or any proteasome inhibitor is going to be on a um, uh, acyclovir or valacyclovir to prevent herpes virus reactivation. Um, so that infectious risk that came with adding a newer drug, bortezomib, to melphalan prednisone is something we see in this study as well. So the, grade, the rates of grade 3 and 4 neutropenia are the same for both groups. It's 39.9% versus 38.7%. So there wasn't, didn't appear to be a big risk or uh, more neutropenia with daratumab. The rate of grade 3 and 4 infections, though, was more with the daratumab group, 23.1% versus 14.7%. So about a, a, an eight to nine percent absolute uh, 
uh, increase in infections, great serious infections. Any infection, the numbers are 66.8% with DARA versus 48% with the comparator. Uh, rates of pneumonia are three times as likely with the daratumab, 15.3% versus 4.8%. So uh, as daratumab works its way up front, um, at least with VMP, we will see more infectious complications, especially outside of a clinical trial setting. Uh, so the question now is, where are the data going to be with using daratumab with, say, a common upfront regimen like bortezomib, uh, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, commonly called VRD or RVD? And as a side note, why do we use the brand names in myeloma regimens, like VRD for Velcade and Revlimid? Why don't we use the generic names? We use C for every other, uh, you know, cancer drug. Let's stick to the generics, I say. Um, well, there is a phase two study ongoing of using daratumumab, um, um, basically using bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dex, plus or minus uh, DARE 2 map up front. It's a phase two study that's ongoing. Uh, preliminary results, according to the clinicaltrials.gov, might be available by the end of 2018, which means we might get that early data uh, at ASH this year uh, in December of 2018. So we'll see. Uh, and by the way, if this didn't quite fit with the podcast, that's because I record it and then uh, I remembered I didn't talk about DARE 2 map because. Um, because I'm a flawed human being. So I've added this in here, and we're going to put this, uh, edit this back in the podcast. And not necessarily an oncologic approval, but certainly a hematologic approval on May, I think it was 4th, uh, adnexinate alpha. That's how it is called in the, uh, in the clinical trials, was approved. Um, the package insert generic name, or the official, I guess, trade name, not trade name, but the established name is generic factor 10A, recombinant, inactivated-ZHZO. No idea how we got that. Uh, but in, in drug information resources, you'll probably find it as uh, andexanet alpha. Uh, so it is basically a genetic, genetically modified variant of our own factor 10A that's made using recombinant DNA technology. And our, the real factor 10A, has a, a serine that is the active site and what has been modified is that serine has been changed to an alanine that basically makes factor 10A inactive. It can't cleave prothrombin to thrombin to, to act to factor 2A. Um, so what it does is it binds to the 10A inhibitors, uh, apixaban and rivaroxaban. It has not been studied with adoxaban, and the approval is very clear that this is for reversal of 10A effects uh, or anti-10A effects of apixaban and rivaroxaban, only those two 10A inhibitors. Um, and as you read through, it also inhibits tissue factor uh, pathway inhibitor, um, which is a way to block uh, tissue factor, which is upregulated or excreted in a lot of cancers. Uh, and that mechanism also is going to increase the risk of, of clots uh, beyond just uh, blocking the, the effects of an anticoagulant by increasing tissue factor-initiated thrombin generation. Uh, and in fact, there is a boxed warning for this drug for ischemic and cardiac events as well as any cause for death within 30 days of use. Uh, the approval is really based off of study in healthy patients. So imagine you listening to this podcast uh, enrolled in a study <clears throat> to make a little money on the side and you took rivaroxaban or pixaban. They measured how much uh, 10A inhibition you had on the drug on the anticoagulant, and then it gave you the antidote and looked to see how did it reverse the anti-tenant effects, how fast did that happen, how long did that happen. That's the main approval for this, is in healthy patients. There is an ongoing study in major bleeding in patients taking uh, 10A inhibitors called ANEXA 
uh, four. Um, and most of those uh, have just been safety results that have been presented, which is where we get that boxed warning for uh, ischemic cardiac events as well as death. Um, one thing I would point out with this drug, uh, it, it binds, because it, it looks like 10A, the Pixban Riveroxban, which is designed to bind to 10A, is going to bind to this just like it does to our own 10A. Uh, but it doesn't remove a Pixban or Riveroxban from the system, so you really have to think about what is the rate of our antidote at next and alpha that we're putting in, and then what is the rate of that leaving the body, as well as the rate of a Pixban or um, Riveroxban leaving the, leaving the body. Um, so this is going to come to your PNT, and you're probably going to have to add it in case somebody comes in with a bleeding event, and this is an FDA-approved drug to treat that bleeding event. So you're going to have to add that, uh, but you're going to have to, to really look at the package insert and look at um, the drug. So if somebody comes in with, um, you know, Riveroxban, Apixaban, whatever, and suddenly they're started on a peak like a protein inhibitor, and their renal function starts to tank, that tenanidomide is going to hang around longer. You're probably going to have to think about using more doses potentially than the drug is labeled for as an antidote, just based on the kinetics. So. Um, that's going to be an important thing to consider if you're involved in taking this to P&T at, uh, at your uh, local institution. Um, so that's what I have for now. Um, as always, um, rate, review us on iTunes. Give us uh, a good review. Leave comments. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, you can uh, you know, contact me on Twitter at FarmDeaton or the show at OncoFarmPod. I hope to hear from you, and uh, I also hope to see you a little further down the road. Thank you.